Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, we'll answer a listener question about why you can't suffocate by holding your breath. Then you'll learn about how being angry affects how much you believe misinformation. And that time scholars tried to kick Latin out of English. Let's satisfy some curiosity. We got a listener question from Daniel in Beirut, who writes, Why is it not possible for a human being to choke themselves to death by intentionally deciding not to breathe? The answer is way more mysterious than you'd think. So obviously, the human body is equipped with fail-safes that make it really hard to kill ourselves on purpose. If you hold your breath for more than a minute or two, your brain will force you to inhale. Even if you could hold your breath long enough to pass out, Once you were unconscious, you wouldn't be able to consciously hold your breath anymore and you'd start breathing again. But here's the mystery. Your lungs should be able to hold enough oxygen to sustain you for four minutes. But most people can barely hold their breath for half that long without training. And sure, carbon dioxide builds up in your blood when you can't breathe, but it doesn't get to toxic levels quickly enough to explain that short time limit. In fact, studies show it has nothing to do with our blood. Patients who have severed nerve connections to the sensors that measure oxygen and carbon dioxide in the blood still can't hold their breath until they pass out. Other studies have even shown that most people can hold their breath until their breaking point, exhale, and then do it again immediately. That wouldn't be possible if it was a matter of oxygen or CO2. While we don't know exactly what triggers this breakpoint, as scientists call it, our best explanation comes down to the diaphragm that sheet of muscle that sits below your lungs and makes them pull in air each time it contracts. See, your brain is constantly sending rhythmic nerve impulses to your diaphragm that tell it to contract and relax. And those impulses don't stop when you hold your breath. When study participants have had their diaphragms temporarily paralyzed, they've been able to hold their breaths for twice as long without any discomfort. That suggests that holding your breath is just you overriding those nerve impulses to your diaphragm and keeping it contracted for as long as possible. Eventually, your diaphragm starts sending signals to your brain that it can't hold on much longer, and your brain makes you take a breath. That may explain why some people can train themselves to hold their breath for so long. They're training their diaphragms to hold out a little longer. This hypothesis still needs more research, but so far, it's the best one we've got. Thanks for your question, Daniel. If you have a question, send it in to curiosity at discovery.com or leave us a voicemail at 312-596-5208. If you're angry, it might be time to step away from the internet because a new study shows that being angry can make you more likely to believe misinformation. This study's findings have somewhat unsettling implications for the pandemic, not to mention issues ranging from decision-making to eyewitness testimony. For the study, 79 people watched a short film clip. After the clip, the participants did two difficult cognitive tasks and then had an interview with a researcher. For some participants, all of these activities were designed to keep their moods level. For others, they were perfectly tuned to make them angry. Like, during some interviews, the researcher would be polite and professional with the participants, but in other interviews, they were disorganized and dismissive and insulting. After the interview, all the participants completed a short quiz about the film they had watched earlier. The researchers designed the quiz to have small bits of misinformation threaded throughout. 
So for instance, one question asks, what do Daniel and Julia sit on during their conversation when Julia drops her purse? But in the film, Julia never drops her purse at all. Now, after that, the participants in the anger group had to write about a time in their lives when something made them angry. When the writing was done, the participants took another test to see how much information they could remember about the film and how much of the misinformation from the quiz they absorbed as fact. As it turned out, the people who had been angered absorbed more misinformation than the people who hadn't been. When they were angry, the participants were more likely to remember the misinformation from the quiz as actually being correct. Maybe most troubling is the fact that both their confidence and decision speed increased with their anger. And the more confident they were, the less accurate their memories tended to be. This isn't just theoretical. Earlier this year, researchers in South Korea found that people who were angry about an election were also more likely to spread misinformation about COVID-19. That study suggested that in order to stem the spread of misinformation, public officials should work on managing the population's anger and direct their desire to act in a positive direction. Easier said than done, but it's worth a shot, right? The longest word in Shakespeare is honorificabilitudinitatibus. It's an overly complicated, show-offy way to say the state of being able to achieve honor. Shakespeare didn't coin it. It was already a well-known joke about how pompous Latin terms had invaded the English language. Over the course of the 15th and 16th centuries, English had become so infested with these types of words that some scholars actually tried to kick Latin out of English. So the Latin influence in English goes back hundreds of years before Shakespeare. After the Norman invasion of 1066, a wave of Latin origin French words made their way into English. They were so well incorporated that we don't notice their foreignness at all. Words like color, language, and peace all ultimately come from Latin. And since Latin was the language of the church and universities, fancier words from those domains also came from Latin. Words like acolyte, mathematics, and academic. For the most part, Latin was used for high-minded pursuits, while English was the lowly language of everyday life. Latin only gained its foothold on English with the advent of the printing press. This invention made it possible to spread ideas further using everyday language to bring culture to the masses. The problem was that English didn't have the vocabulary required for some more complex concepts, so publishers had to adopt some words from Latin. Words like describe, explain, and illustrate were introduced to use another new coinage. But while some words were created out of necessity, many were just to show off. I mean, words like sepeditation, meaning supplies, and illicibrious, meaning enticing, have not exactly stood the test of time. It wasn't long before people started to push back against this trend. Scholars wanted English to be clear and straightforward without borrowing foreign words. So they invented their own purely English terms. Words like ensay as a substitute for conclusion and say what as a substitute for proposition. Most of these never caught on, aside from the surprisingly enduring naysay, and Latin continued its English invasion. Not only have many of those fancy Latin words been completely absorbed into English by now, 
They've been so thoroughly absorbed that they no longer seem fancy at all. These days, it sounds way less show-offy to say immediately than anon or reluctant than loathe. We'll probably never be completely at ease with honorificabilitudinitatibus, but that won't be because it comes from Latin. Verily. <laughs> Before we recap what we learned today, here's a sneak peek at what you'll hear next week on Curiosity Daily. Next week, you'll learn about a global study of sourdough and what it means for the popular pandemic pastime of baking bread, what researchers found when they sequenced the bizarre duck-billed platypus genome, why our microbiomes may have come from dirt, how medical science answered a 300-year-old philosophy question, and more. You'll also learn about how to understand statistics you see in the news, like what does a 95% effective COVID vaccine actually mean? with journalist and economist Tim Harford. So much to talk about, but for now, let's recap what we learned today. Starting with the fact that we're not exactly sure why you won't suffocate from holding your breath, but it's probably because your brain sends signals to your diaphragm to contract and relax. This is one of those listener questions that I just love because... At first, it's like, yeah, why can't we hold our breath and suffocate ourselves? And you're like, because your brain won't let you. Well, that's the easy answer. But why? Why won't your brain let you? What's the deal? Oh, there's a mystery? There's a mystery! We don't know! I love it. Oh, so satisfying. A mystery. And we learned that being angry makes you more likely to believe misinformation and maybe even spread it. So check in with your emotions when you're scrolling through social media or watching TV. Because the last thing anyone needs right now is more incorrect info. This harkens back to another story we once did about HALT. You know, check in on yourself. Are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? And if you're any one of those things, maybe take care of that necessity before you do anything else. Because if you don't, you might do something you regret. Yeah, I've been thinking about coming up with a couple criteria for when I should tweet, especially if it's something in the news cycle. And I think something like rule number one should be, did I have an opinion about this thing 10 minutes ago or did I just come up with this opinion? And then don't tweet if I just came up with it. Is this a thing I know anything about or have been curious about or was even remotely interested in before just now? If not, maybe don't tweet about it. Turns out maybe I don't have a master's degree in economics five minutes after reading one CNBC article about GameStop stock. Just a thought. Yeah, I guess my rule of thumb is if someone happened upon my Twitter feed right now, would this tweet make them think highly of me? That that really makes sure that my Twitter feed stays positive and well-informed because those are things I want people to think about me. <laughs> and you're very good at it. Well, thank you. We also learned that Latin started to kind of invade the English language after the printing press was invented. A lot of times because some things didn't have English words, so Latin words would come in to do the trick. But other Latin words just came over to show off, so scholars got to the point where they were just inventing new English words instead. And at the end of the day, we ended up with lots of Latin words and a handful of made-up words, and now we have English. Yeah. I love the word anon. Not anon as in anonymous, but anon as in now. Like, I will meet you anon. Or proceed to the next dungeon anon. Or I will research the atherochemical properties of the warring triad anon. Or you need to meet with Commander Alden regarding recent activity within the Garlean Empire anon. 
I've been playing a lot of Final Fantasy fourteen. I actually used old timey words and phrases like anon more and more often the more immersed I am in a particular piece of literature or video game. Sure. So like after I read Game of Thrones, it was all about I must needs go do this thing or I'm going to have some milk of the poppy before bed. <laughs> the the, num- the top one was or near enough as makes no matter. That was so good. Is that basically like, I mean, close enough for government work kind of thing, like close enough for jazz? <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of different uh, industries say this. <laughs> I've never heard either of those, but they sound great. It just basically means like it's not perfect, but it's good enough. Something like that. Like before you eat it, let your sourdough bread rest for an hour or near enough is makes no matter. That kind of thing. I love that kind of language. I love language. I love playing with language. Language is just so good. Yeah. I'm probably in the right profession, I guess. Today's stories were written by Ashley Hamer, Kelsey Donk, and Erica Okrent, and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Script writing was by Cody Goff and Sonia Hodgen. Today's episode was produced and edited by Cody Goff. Have a great weekend, Anon, and join us again Monday morning, or near enough as makes no matter, to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.